This might turn out to be a one and a half worthers sermon. I want to talk about those uh-oh moments and those aha moments. In my Mennonite family of origin, each supper time began with what we called our daily devotions. And it involved a reading from the Bible, a reading from an often guilt-ridden interpretation of that scripture, and then a prayer spoken by my father. All of us kids were starving and Most often, the smell of the steaming food on the table made us impatient or tempted us with giggles. And the prayer was always predictable, and us kids would lip-sync my father as he spoke these rote prayers, which often created the giggles. One phrase he especially used and repeated, Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of this day. Well, one day we were not going to get together at the supper meal, so my father insisted on having our daily devotions in the morning. And again, the road prayer followed by that phrase, thank you for the blessings, pause, of the night. Well, my mother broke into laughter. (laughs) Didn't take us long to join her and ask dad, what was the blessings of the night? We, we were evidence that these blessings were or existed, but we had never really brought it up over dinner. <laughs> and I'd give anything to still be hearing those prayers. In August of 2012, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary released their annual list of new dictionary words, terms and popular slang that had earned their way into the lexicon through common use. And at the very top, above bucket list, above game changer, and above sexting, was the phrase popularized by Oprah herself, aha moment. It was Oprah's use of that term that brought it into the dictionary, which defines it as a moment of sudden realization, inspiration, insight, recognition, or comprehension. The thing about an aha moment, Oprah said, is that you think you've never thought of it that way before. But you can't have an aha moment unless you already knew it. And so the aha moment in her definition is a remembering of what you already knew, perhaps unconsciously, articulated in a way to resonate with your own truth. So the aha isn't someone teaching you something new. The aha is someone helping you to remember. And the things that are blocking your insight suddenly are removed. You think outside the box. The aha moment takes you beyond your confirmation bias towards a broader awareness. And it usually makes things bigger. Scientists who study these moments say they involve a two-phase Process. The first phase of the aha experience requires the problem solver to come upon an impasse, to bump against a wall, where they become stuck, and even though they may seemingly have explored all the possibilities, they're still unable to retrieve or generate a solution. The second phase occurs somewhat suddenly and unexpectedly, after a break in a mental fixation or reevaluating the problem, the answer is retrieved. And in order to solve insight problems, one must think outside the box. It is this thinking outside the box 
that may cause people to have a better memory for that aha moment. So in our Old Testament passage, as well as our New Testament passage, they're both saturated with aha moments. However, I want to suggest, and this is key, that there is a huge difference in the application of the aha moment of God and Moses and the application of the aha moment between Jesus and these three disciples. And I want to suggest that the difference invites an aha moment for you and me. I admire Moses for two major things, his leadership in bringing Israel out of Egypt and his awareness of what it takes to think outside the box. He and his elders are trying to come up with a governing system to manage these former slaves who are now confused about how to live in freedom. They are in that first phase where they become stuck. They've been batting ideas around but haven't gotten a possible governing solution. And here in our Old Testament text, they begin to enter that second stage, realizing that to think outside the box, they have to take some time outside of their normal context, get away from the stress of leadership and governance, and sit. And for them, this is an invitation to go up the mountain, a sacred invitation. So uh, unlike us who want instant solutions, we have lost this sabbatical awareness. So Moses and Joshua leave the elders behind to supervise the people, and he and Joshua head up the mountain. They start by spending six, six days enveloped, it says, by the cloud of God, waiting and anticipating an aha realization while sitting in the fog. It's almost as if they were saying, I know God is here somewhere, but I sure don't see anything. And then after six days of waiting, lightning and thunder call from the top of the mountain, and Moses senses he needs to enter deeper into this storm of confusion. And so he climbs to the top of the mountain to wait and to listen. He is in the fog for 40 days and 40 nights. How do you do that? We talk about the patience of Job. He sits in the fog in holy confusion, believing there's an answer there somewhere, even though you can't see it. And eventually, the fog clears, and he receives the foundational disclosure we call the Ten Commandments. And he writes them down. But from here on, some of my admiration for Moses becomes tarnished. Why? I think a problem occurs when you take an aha moment and somehow assume that you have been given the authority and power to interpret how this new insight is to be put into practice. You can create a contradiction between the message and the actions. Stay with me now. This section of Exodus from chapter 20, where Moses first writes down these Ten Commandments, all the way to chapter 34, 14 chapters, where the second set of stones is given to Moses, portrays the struggle to establish this post-Egypt economic, political, and religious culture called Israel. And in terms of what we call the Ten Commandments, in chapter 20, 
Moses simply writes them down with a pen and paper? Well, no, but whatever the equivalent was. Like a rough copy. Then not until chapter 32, 12 chapters later, are they first written in stone. A lot happens in between chapters 20 and 32. And then in 32, Moses finally brings them down to the people and in frustration smashes them. And in his anger, he and the Levites, the priestly class, kill 3,000 of his fellow citizens, justifying this because of God's assumed wrath. And then in chapter 34, God chisels them in stone again. Now, in the culture of the time, there were often two documents used before something became written in stone. A smaller tablet that was used to present the core ideas, almost like a letter of intent. And then once that was negotiated and agreed upon, a larger tablet was created, written in stone permanently. It's where our phrase written in stone originates. There was likely a lot of negotiation and theologizing and perhaps leadership posturing between these two stages. And I think our passage reflects that. In actuality, there are no Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. The word command is not used anywhere, not in Exodus, not in Deuteronomy, not in Leviticus. Nowhere in the Bible are these regulations identified as commands. The word in the original text used for what tradition has referred to as commandments is simply word. At the beginning of Exodus chapter 20, the text simply reads, and God spoke all these words. This is an important distinction. A command is a kind of communication that does not require any dialogue, just obedience. Saying God spoke these words, on the other hand, is a relational invitation for dialogue. It's like saying, here's ten great ideas. What do you think about them? Might they work for you? And God communicates himself in these ten words and awakes our response. This is filled with grace. However, Moses and the elders, in my estimation, didn't exactly handle it with grace. Regardless, isn't it true that most of us look at these words and say, yeah, there's some good ideas in there about how to live? We would be more accurate to refer to them as ten words or phrases or statements of God's intentions. God provides his letter of intent in a time of uncertainty and transition hoping that the leaders of the people will utilize these to serve the people, and however the leaders end up using them to bind the people in different ways, through religious observation, priestly priority, authority, heavy labor and taxation, and along with the enforcement of obedience. And then they give them the guilt message that they should be overwhelmed with the wonderful things that God is doing through them, I know that temptation. After all, I'm a priest in the Anglican Church. Look what God is doing through me. It's so easy to lose sight of what God is longing to do in and through us. We all like the idea of all people being born equal. However, give us a little power tied to a new insight, and we will find a way to make ourselves more equal than others.
And so the ten words are given as a basis of communication and discussion. If that is so, what happens between chapter 20, when Moses does a rough draft of what we call the Ten Commandments, and chapter 34, when he gets the second set, is a discussion that follows. Although on first blush, it looks like it became a power ploy on Moses' part rather than a discussion with the people. He receives these ten good ideas and uses them to establish a theocracy that puts him and his 70 elders at the top of the totem pole housed in an elaborate temple system and religious organization, built on the backs of the people through force, slavish labor, and overwhelming taxation, punishable by death if not obeyed. Where did the grace go? Thousands were killed because they didn't follow his interpretation of the guidelines. And because Moses assumed he had God on his side, in God we trust, And we as the rulers get to decide what that looks like. The Levites established huge taxation, huge wealth for the priestly class, huge building projects of the temple, endless rituals to please and worship God, sacrifices to provide endless protein and veneration for the priestly class, with lots of necessities and rule around royal vestments. This was the establishment of a human theocracy, the maintenance of which fell on the backs of the people. It was power over rather than love with, and that became the norm. Let's be easy on them. It's all they knew. Now, I'm not espousing a breakdown of law and order here, nor am I minimizing the contribution of Moses in freeing the people from slavery. But again, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Think of the human history you know. It's filled with this, with examples. Even our own lives easily reflect this in the little kingdoms of power that we establish. And that's where there is a huge contrast between this cloud experience of Moses in Exodus and the cloud experience in Matthew that we call the Transfiguration. Jesus' ministry and life culminating in this transfiguration story seems to tear down all of that theocratic interpretation and priestly hierarchy that goes back to Moses. Jesus questions much of what the Mosaic system established. His criticism of the priests, Pharisees, scribes, and their theocratic tendencies tend to strip all the religious trappings, replacing them with a different temple that is located in the individual and collective heart of the people. His his confrontation of this mosaic theocracy (laughs) is what got him killed. The transformation demonstrates that the kingdom of God is a word of love, not a command of law. The guidelines are necessary, but not as something to be scrupulously and judgmentally followed but as descriptions, incarnations even, of how love operates in the world, what we call the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. It's always possible to twist the letter of the law to our own advantage. I do that every year when I file my income taxes. (laughs) Works in commerce, 
law and politics, and perhaps appropriately. But it doesn't work so well in relationships. In the chapter leading to the transfiguration story, Jesus has confusingly shared with his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem, the seat of power, to undergo great suffering at the hands of who? The elders, the priests, the scribes, the governing and religious leaders that were established under Moses, and be tortured and killed by them in their collusion with the Romans, and then in three days be raised as the Christ. The disciples resist this. Like Moses, they wanted to see a new earthly theocracy established, putting them at the top of the totem pole. Remember the disciples' question? Jesus, which one of us will be the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus names this as a satanic point of view. He looks Peter in the eye and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. For Jesus, this was stinking thinking. And his antidote? Take them up the mountain to pray. Sit with the uncertainty, the oh-oh, and wait for the fog to clear, the aha. He takes them up the mountain to pray, and suddenly this transfiguration thing, whatever it is, happens. And there is Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets, talking together with Jesus. I would love to know what they talked about. Might they too have suddenly understood that Jesus was there not to undo the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill these ten words of God. They were what, and to fulfill what they were intended to do in the first place. Regardless, it was the beginning of an ongoing aha moment for the disciples, and perhaps for Moses and Elijah as well. We so easily get captivated by the language of transfiguration. But the perspective here is not about Moses, Elijah, or even Jesus. The language in the text focuses on the disciples and thereby focuses on us. Count how many times they or them appears in the text. And as is clear from the ending of the episode, where Jesus is suddenly alone, the point is not a change in Jesus but a change in them and their understanding of who he is. The full truth will only come after his death and resurrection. But these privileged three have a foretaste, an anticipation, which will only begin to make sense later. And at this point, they begin to understand what it means for Jesus to be the beloved Son of God. And eventually, they begin to understand what it means for the kingdom to be within the human heart. And because the focus is on the disciples, it is also on us. Each of us are called the beloved child of God. This is the law of love. So whatever the heck happened on that mountain, the aha moment came when they saw Jesus in a new light, somehow connected with what they had been trying, what he had been trying to tell them all along that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of a system that people like Moses and Elijah instituted out of their interpretation of these ten lovely words of God. How our human tendency has always been to focus on divine power rather than divine love. 
Not just Moses, but all power tends to interpret these principles as commands on which were evaluated rather than the wonderful words that actually describe how God loves. Years ago at a family camp exercise, we divided people into groups from about the age 12 all the way to in their 60s and 70s, five in a group. And we asked them to pretend that they were God. And there were three rules. We gave them big pieces of paper and we said, pretend you're God and change anything you want. But there's three rules. You're all powerful, you're all loving, and your greatest gift to the creation is free choice. Nobody could change anything without breaking one of those rules. A little boy said, I want to create a world where everyone loves one another. What a lovely sentiment. No matter what they tried to change, they couldn't do it without breaking one of those rules. So then we asked, which one are you most willing to break? I noticed that the older generation was most willing to break the divine love rule because they wanted to claim God's power. After all, I need a resurrection. The younger generation would break the rule of all-powerfulness as an act of love. Nobody liked breaking the rule of free choice. The divine reality of love means that God breaks God's own rules as an act of love. Power is only good if I have more of it than you do. But if I have it all, what is the only loving thing to do? To give it. That's what grace is. That's what incarnation is about. That's the words of God and what they're trying to tell us. So perhaps for our culture in the seen world, the transfiguration is also a declaration about the necessity of keeping church and state separate. Because when we don't, we inevitably sacrifice divine love and act out of a sense of power over. We change these beautiful possibilities of words spoken by God and make them commands that we as God's people are responsible to enforce. And we live in this box called the world, where power tends to trump love, pun intended. The transfiguration invites us to think and live outside this box. We are called to reflect an unseen world where love always trumps power, even if it gets us killed. The encounter on the mountain serves to emphasize that Jesus is not simply one like Moses or Elijah, but he far transcends them as the Son of the living God, in whom, the one in whom we encounter God's own presence and glory. And the seed of this glory dwells in the unseen world, a mysterious, transfigured world where all is filled with the light of love. And so we live in this world by faith, seeking to reflect the loving nature of God while grappling with our tendency to co-opt the powerfulness of God for our own agendas. The divine intent is to sacrifice power as an act of love. That's why we pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we, you and I, like Christ, are the incarnation of that possibility. Amen.